1: Hello, my friend. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that I've been playing around with SMS and I've been learning a lot lately. And I built something pretty cool to test here on the podcast. So if you will indulge me, if you love the show and you don't yet receive my newsletter, just text creator to 66866. I'll say that one more time. Text the word creator to 66866. 66 and you can very quickly, very easily be added to that list. I want to see how well this works. I've been looking for a long time for a tool that allows listeners to very quickly and easily opt in to my newsletter. So again, that's creator text that to 66866. I'm going to be playing around even more with SMS over the coming weeks. So stay tuned. Thanks for being an early adopter. Now, something else that I've been batting around for a long time is writing a book. I would love to be an author. So as part of that learning process, I'm speaking with more authors. And today we're very fortunate to hear from Dan Pink. Dan is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. As part of the research for this book, Dan analyzed 16,000 different regrets submitted from individuals from more than 100 countries. It's a great book, and I really highly recommend it. His other books include the New York Times bestsellers When and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers Drive and To Sell Is Human. Dan's books have won multiple awards, they've been translated into 42 languages, and they've sold millions of copies around the world. This interview is full of very interesting, candid stories and anecdotes about writing books, including this one. I realized, like, this book proposal that I'd written, and I was like,
0: you know, I've written 35 pages. I don't think this is a book. Um, <laughs> and I'd rather find that out now than when I had a contract for it. And I think that a lot of books that you see, the, the, a lot of the, the the weaker books out there, are books where that would have benefited from people doing that vetting process.
1: Before he was an author, Dan worked in several positions in politics and government, including serving as chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. You may also know Dan from his TED Talk, "The Puzzle of Motivation," which has received more than ten million views.
0: The good news about all this is that the scientists who've been studying motivation have given us this new approach. It's an approach built much more around intrinsic motivation, around the desire to do things because they matter, because we like it, because they're interesting, because they're part of something important.
1: So in this episode, you'll learn why follow your passion can be bad advice, when to maximize versus when to satisfy, Dan's rules for writing that allow him to be so prolific as an author, and why Dan doesn't write about the same subject in all of his books. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me, say hello. Let me know that you're listening. And now let's talk with Dan. I've heard you say in the past that you don't like the advice, follow your passion, and I'd love to dig in more on that and hear your, your stance on why well, following your passion is not your favorite thing.
0: Yeah, okay. So, 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 so here's the thing. Um, so I don't, I, I'm going to offer a slight amendment to that. So I'm not necessarily deeply opposed to following your passion. What I am deeply opposed to is that if you are a young person or if you are at a juncture in your life trying to figure out what to do, I am deeply opposed to asking yourself the question, what's your passion? I think mm. that's a terrible and, and even insidious question. And the reason for that, Jay, is that, well, there are a lot of reasons for it. But among the reasons for it are, one – It's a hard question to answer. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I could ever give you a good answer to that question. There's a lot of pressure when somebody asks you that question or when you ask yourself that answer. You have to come up with a really, really good answer, all right? So I think that it actually freezes people. The second thing is that it is a little bit too much directed internally rather than externally. I I think there there are two better questions than that. One of them I have got from my friend Tom Rath. The other one I got from my... um, my own experience. And so, so, so the question I got from my own experience is this. What do you do? Okay, what do you do? Uh, what do you do when nobody's watching? What do you do because mm-hmm. you can't help yourself? What do you do because it's part of who you are? And, and I became a writer in part by asking myself, realizing I should ask myself that question. Um, which is not asking himself what my passion is because I've been a writer for a long time and I don't know if writing is my passion. I'm not sure because writing is a giant pain in the ass a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and but if you if you ask if it, I, I discovered at some point in my life, maybe in my 20s, even my early 30s, that that's what I did, uh, that I was that's what I was doing, that's what I was thinking about. And I think that's a better question than what's your passion because in order to do good work, it requires. A degree of pain, a large degree of pain. Some of the stuff you have to do to create good work is boring. Some of the stuff you have to do to create good work is really, really difficult. It's uncertain. You're living in ambiguity. It's not, in the moment, extremely fun. But you do it because that's what you do. Now, <laughs> Tom Rath has another beautiful question that you can ask yourself, which is this, not what's your passion, but where can I make my biggest contribution? Where can I make my biggest contribution? And when Tom told me that question, I I found that really powerful too. And I think that's a really helpful question to ask because that also is externally focused. It's the question of what do you do is focus more on our behavior rather than our affect. So it's something external in the world. And then what, what, what you, the question about your contribution is focused on your impact of those actions. So I think those are better questions.
1: Something I'd love to get your take on along these lines. I see this all over the place because now that we're all walking, talking, micro media companies, a lot of young, ambitious people feel almost like directionless with their ambition. They're like, I know I wanna leave a dent. I know I wanna make an imprint on the world. I know I wanna contribute something and I have so much energy, but I'm just not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your advice on first steps people in that circumstance should take to start answering this question of what do I do?
0: Um, start small, do one thing. Uh, don't, at, don't, don't answer that question on a 10-year time horizon. Um, answer that question a one day time horizon, ask yourself, uh, what's, if I could do anything today, what would I do and what would be my biggest contribution today? And then do it again the next day and do it again the next day and do it again the next day. A lot of times those, 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 those mega questions that people are asking, understandably, sometimes, uh, you they make sense only in retrospect. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that, is that in some level, we've gotten the, the sequence wrong. We think that the way we move through the world is that we figure stuff out and then we act. And I discovered in some ways the hard way, Jay, that that sequence is reversed. That the way to figure things out is to act. Uh, that, 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 that doing stuff and acting uh, is a form of figuring out. And, and in some ways, it's a little indulgent to sort of say, I'm going, to, I'm going to operate only in my own head and try to understand how things are going. And then I'm going to have this carefully architected plan that I'm simply going to execute. That's not how
1: the world works. Something that I see paralyzing a lot of people is there's almost a, a dogma now that since there's so much information out there and we're all you know pushed in a direction of maximizing everything we create like we feel mm-hmm. like we need to take the perfect next step because if we're not doing this all in perfect sequence towards this perfect outcome we're wasting our time mm. uh, and i think that's a real disservice to people because it feels like there's not the safe space to play yeah and just act for acting's sake um i i wonder if that's like uniquely this time period we're in because i, I think don't. about your career starting with your first book, Free Agent Nation, in two thousand one, and you weren't pressured to like write on Twitter about the the process of writing this book. Do you think that the times have changed for writers who ultimately want to write books but feel like they have to be publicly publishing constantly?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. I I really, I'm really not. Um, You know, part of me says, yeah, it is a different landscape and you do need to be out there more and more often. Uh, And that a lot of this social media is very much a volume game. So you have to just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And, um, and that can be, uh, I think there's some, some, some dark sides of that. Uh, uh, on, On the other side, I think there's something to be said for just you know, doing your work and trying to do as great a job as you possibly can and not stressing about about everything. I mean, we, we you used a very important word there, Jay, which is maximizing. That's a very important word. And we have, you know, Barry Schwartz about 20 years ago, uh, who Barry Schwartz is a social psychologist, uh, was at Swarthmore for a long time, now is at the University of California Berkeley. Um, And he wrote a very – with uh, his collaborator, whose name is escaping right now, a very interesting paper about 20 years ago, maybe even a little bit more, about the difference in decision-making between what he called maximizers and satisficers. Maximizers try to get the best out of every decision. I'm going to have not only – I'm going to write the best blog post today that I possibly can. I'm going to order the finest hamburger in the city of Washington, D.C., Um, I need to get my roof fixed. I'm going to find the best roofer in the Del Marve area. All right. So they maximize on everything. Satisficers say, I'm just going to write a good enough blog post. I'm going to write a good enough, eat a good enough hamburger. And what's interesting is that what Schwartz found is that, is that maximizers do achieve more sometimes, but they're miserable. And to me, one of the questions of life is how do we decide what to maximize on and what to satisfy on and the older i get the more i realize that a lot of the stuff we just want to freaking satisfy on and we want to save our energy for maximizing on a few things that are incredibly important and most things are not incredibly important and so i think figuring out that balance between where do i satisfy where do i say good enough is good enough and where do I maximize is extremely important. And I deal with this literally every day. So, you know, I, I mean, this morning I was writing an email and I was like, re- I was recrafting the email. And ultimately, it didn't matter whether I had the most brilliantly crafted email today and what it was going to do, because the person reading it was probably going to take 14 seconds and then never thinking about it again. So, what was I doing? On that one, I should have been satisfying. Um, what I should have been maximizing on was, you know, spending some time this morning, which I did not do in developing new projects. So, um, so all of us fall fall prey to that. And I think I think it's a really important question: where do I satisfy and where do I maximize? And in my view, many people um, maximize on too many things and satisfy on too
1: few things. I love that. I, I recently heard the idea that the young man knows the rules and the old man knows the rules so that he can break them. Or this idea that mastery is knowing what to ignore i love these these concepts of deciding where to compromise on effort or focus for the benefit of other things because um you know the the more the time that i spend in this content creation world the more that I realize time allocation is like everything. It's the question that drives every day. Where am I putting this time right now? What am I deciding yeah. on, on spending time on? And I know that historically you've kept your uh, business as a creator really lean. I think yeah. the last yeah, I absolutely. heard your, your company is you and your wife, correct? Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, that's a, that's a decision that is partly a business decision and partly a lifestyle decision and partly a what you're good at decision. So I can, I can parse those out. So the business decision is what I say to everybody. Listen, I have been, I have been self-employed for 25 years. I can't even believe that. I've been self-employed for 25 years. I can't even believe that Jay when I'm saying that. And I have never had an office outside of my home. Why? Because I don't want to pay rent to anybody. Okay. <laughs> Playing rent to anybody is taking money out of my pocket and putting it in someone else's pocket. And even though I don't have an MBA, I have an intuitive sense that's not a great idea to do at scale. OK, so so and, and the other thing is and I see people screw this up all the time is low overhead, man, you know, low overhead. Um, we, we, you know, it's it's not only about it's not only about revenue, it's about the bottom line. And, and so keeping your, co- keeping your costs minimal and staying lean and mean is a way to continue doing the work that you want to do. That's one thing. Second thing is lifestyle. I have zero interest in waking up in the morning and running a company. Zero. I like to wake up in the morning. Well, what I like to do is wake up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and like read three newspapers and not actually do any work. But on the days <laughs> that I push past that instinct, I... Uh, instead, want to go into my office and uh, figure stuff out that other people haven't figured out and create stuff and put it to the world. That's it. I don't want to run. So that's, that's the lifestyle point. And um, the, th- the third point, so what did I say? I said um, business lifestyle. Oh yeah. And what you're good at. I'm not good at running stuff. I'm not good at managing people. So again, as we drop these life lesson bombs, on all of your listeners here, Jay, the other one, get ready because it's about to detonate. The other life lesson bomb is along with figuring out where to maximize and where to satisfy, why you should not ask what's your passion, but instead ask, what do you do and where can you make your largest contribution? You should also ask yourself this question, what am I not good at? And what I'm not, what I'm not, what the, there's a whole universe of things that I'm not good at, but <laughs> But among the many items in that universe is I am not good at running stuff, at coordinating stuff, at leading people, at organizing people. That's not what I'm good at. So I shouldn't do that.
1: What you are good at is publishing best selling books. Love the power of regret. Hey, thanks. Love the idea of turning this over in our mind and interrogating this belief of should regret be bad? I'd love to dig into. What makes you great as an author? And in the process of writing a book, what are you thinking about maximizing? Because there's a world where you spend all day on Twitter engaging with people who are saying, I love reading Dan Pink's book and feel all the dopamine hits all day. But to write a deep work of nonfiction probably requires your time to be doing something different. So how do you think about allocating your time?
0: Don't waste, don't fritter away your day on Twitter, number one, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, and, you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not like anti, uh, so, so, I mean, among the things that you can do, I mean, I've done this myself. I mean, I will, um, I, um, I think you have to put in some, I think you have to put in some guardrails because it, because you have to recognize that this, these technologies are designed to addict you. They're designed to suck you in. They're designed to distract you from things that you want to focus on to the things that their advertisers want you to focus on. Okay. So you are, you have to, you have to recognize it. You are being manipulated here. Now that's not always a bad thing. When we watch a play, we're being manipulated by the playwright and the actors and the set designer. So it's it's not an inherently bad thing, but you are being manipulated. So I think you have to put in some guardrails there. I'll give you some guardrails that I've used. I don't have this right now, but it's other points. I've just taken Twitter off of my phone. Um, so, so I don't have the instinct to, if I'm waiting for a bus or whatever to check Twitter at that moment. Okay. So take that off your phone. You can also do things at least on the iPhone, where if it is on your phone, you can put in a time limit. And so you can set, you know, so you can say after, and and my time limit is the smallest increment that you can use there, which is five minutes. Five minutes a day can be, can be plenty. And then it's like, Oh, you're up, you're out of time. That's, that's, that's the other thing. The The other, the other kind of guardrail that I've used, especially when I'm, when I'm writing, is um, it is an inviolable rule um, that I do not look at any social media of any kind during my writing hours or when I'm trying to make my word count ever. I, I treat that, I try to treat that rule. I usually, I'm fairly successful in treating that rule. I treat that rule in the same way that I don't, during my writing time, I don't have, you know, three martinis either. Because I know that would be destructive to my creativity and my productivity. So, um, so, so I, think you can put in, I think you can put in guardrails that way.
1: After a quick break, Dan and I dig into his approach to writing. And later, we talk about how he chooses the subject of his next book. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business. And earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting and out-of-the-box website full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreenlink slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full-time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash creator. And now back to my conversation with New York Times best-selling author Dan Pink. Can you tell me more about your writing hours and your word count?
0: Sure. When I'm working on, especially when I'm working on a book or or, or a long article, um, you know, I tend to treat the, I tend to treat the writing like a, like a job, like a, like in, in some ways, you know, the, the example, the analogy I've used many, 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 many times is, is, is a bricklayer. So I, I have a job to, to, to lay bricks and to essentially to build some kind of structure with bricks. And my job is to come into my office every day and lay the bricks. Um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm in the mood to lay the bricks or not, that's irrelevant. My job is to show up at 8.30 in the morning and lay the bricks. And I find that if I have a specific time I need to be in the office and a specific number of bricks I need to lay, that is a word count. What I do is I, I establish that time of coming into the office. I establish that word count, which for me, since I'm a very slow writer, it's not a massive word count. Sometimes it's 500 words, sometimes it's 700 words. Um, and I don't do anything until I hit that number. Uh, I don't look at my email. I don't I don't even bring my phone with me into the office, but I don't look at my email. I don't do anything else. I don't have schedule any kind of appointments. I don't do anything else until I hit that number. Um, and then I'm liberated to do other things, but, Then I do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. (laughs) And that's how you get shit done.
1: When you've taken on other projects like working uh, on the TV show with National Geographic, do you take a hiatus from like the writing hours? Yes. Here's the thing. Okay.
0: Okay. Get ready, put on your flak jacket listeners, because we got another knowledge bomb that's about another to go off bomb. here. <laughs> All right. I mean, another life lesson bomb that's about to go off. Uh, I think you also have to uh, understand how you work. Okay. And there are people who are, I mean, this is an old fashioned way of thinking about it, but there are people who are very effective serial processors. They do, they do something in sequence. I do this, then I do that, to do that. And there are other people who are more powerful parallel processors. They can do things in, 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 in parallel. I'm a serial processor. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I wish I were a parallel processor, but I'm not. I'm a serial processor. So I tend to do things. I like to work on basically one thing. I'm, again, I'm the, that's not saying that everybody should do, do that. Um, in fact, I don't think everybody <laughs> should do that. Uh, but I do that. For better or worse. And so, so I will, so, um, so, so when I'm in the really, when I'm in the throes of writing a book, I close my calendar entirely to anything. I don't do anything else. Uh, and certainly when I wow. take out a big, uh, when I take out a big project like that, um, that you just mentioned, I close my calendar um, entirely so I can focus on that and, and only that. Now, occasionally things will infiltrate, but that's, that's, that again, that's, your mileage may vary, listener, but that's how I do it.
1: One thing I really admire about your your career as an author is it's very clear, like you said earlier, you've you followed your interests. You know, you went free agent nation talking about the future of working uh, for yourself. You have a whole new mind, which is about right brainers versus left brainers. Uh, then you have a career guide, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, which I've heard you say is one of your favorite books that you've written. And these things are tangentially related. But it's, it's not as if you've written like Free Agent Nation and then six follow-ups in that same direct canon, right? So I would love to hear how you think about the sequence of your books and how you choose an idea to dive deep into because you do such a deep research. Um, since these things aren't necessarily perfectly sequential.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, the truth is I, I actually don't think that that much about it. Like to me, that's not the question. That's not... Again, your ones, your mileage may vary. That's not how I think about it. Um, What I think about is what is an idea a concept that I want to wake up and grapple with every day, intensely for the next few years. And we'll end up wanting, we'll end up talking about for the next 10, 20 years and, the truth is, that's not most things. And so you have to have a very high bar for that. And it doesn't matter much whether the second book you wor- I work on or the third book I work on is a somehow perceived as a natural outgrowth of the first or second book I've worked on. Now, I mean, if I started writing um, uh, gothic romances right now, <laughs> I think that that might be far afield. And people would say, what the hell are you, you know, like it would make no sense at all. But, um, but I have no, I have no, I, I have no interest in in doing that. I, I think that you have to find something that you care deeply about and you're willing to spend all of your time and energy over both that concentrated period in the shortish run, a couple of years, but then also you know, talking about, you know, for the rest of your for for the rest of your your life. I mean, I got a um, I just got a, I got a press inquiry this morning about a, the book on timing I wrote. That was only four years ago, but I've gotten pre- you know, I'll get press inquiries on on um, on stuff I wrote 10 years ago or. 15 years ago. And that's cool. Uh, Cause I, I care about this. I care about those ideas, but, but most things I, you don't, you don't care about. So I think it's really important to find something that you are deeply interested in. And here's the thing. I really believe that if I'm deeply interested in something, other people are going to be deeply interested in it. It's not like I have some kind of exalted <coughs> preferences or tastes, or I'm such a unique individual that if I'm deeply interested in how to be more effective in influencing and persuading and selling that I'm the only
1: one who's going to be interested in that I ask because it's it almost gives people permission a lot of creators starting today again they feel this pressure yeah. to maximize the path they're taking and the advice is typically like you've got to corner yourself as the blank guy yeah you know yeah. the future yeah. of work guy the yeah. regret guy yeah um and it's it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I mean, I think, you know, again, again, I'm not saying that that my experience is necessarily what everybody else should do. I'm just telling you what I do and why I do it. Now, I think that there is there is something to be said for, you know, cornering the market conceptually in some ways so that so that people always think of people, you know, people always think of you. I, I think I can see that that there is something to be said for that. In the shortest run, in the longest run, I'm not sure because I've seen this too many times where people essentially like you're not doing readers any good writing the same book three times, although lots of people do that. Um, I mean, I have there are authors I know who basically who really can't give me a good explanation about why book three is different from book two is different from book one, Um, because they're essentially just rehashing the same Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so... Um, and, and, and the thing is, is like, first of all, I think that's boring. Second of all, I think it doesn't do a service to readers. Third, I think for 99% of people, it's a terrible commercial strategy.
1: Can you say more about that?
0: I mean, you said something, you said something original and people liked it. So to pretend that you're saying something new about that idea when you're really not, people can see through that again there are charlatans and, and posers and f- so forth who end up doing well that's true in every field of any kind it has nothing to do you know like you know there's like i mean in any this is like this is like another thing that, that i think younger creators have to deal with is that what happens in a world of when you're dealing with anything that is about art ideas concepts stories Uh, media, anything like that, when you're putting stuff out there in the world and you're getting evaluated by large numbers of people and some things are hits and some things are misses and some things succeed and some things don't, that you're going to look around and you're going to say, that person succeeded and that person stinks. That person is putting crap out there and it's incredibly annoying. I'm with you on that 100%. But you know what? That happens what what also happens is that somebody else puts out something that is great, and it doesn't get the it doesn't get attention or it doesn't get the attention it deserves. That happens a lot too. That stinks too. I hate that. I hate when I see people doing great work and it doesn't go anywhere. That is a that is frustrating. I mean, obviously, it's frustrating, deeply frustrating and vexing to them, but it's frustrating to me too. Um, and you know what? There's nothing you can do about that. What you have to try to do is create the best stuff that you possibly can, push it and, and share it with the world as robustly as you possibly can with, with a degree of intensity that I think that is often underestimated in order to make. And then recognize that there's an enormous amount of luck and fickleness in the market out there. Uh, but I do think, again, when we're talking short term and long term, over time, that's generally good strategy doing stuff you care about, doing a great job, caring deeply about quality, being relentless about sharing it with the world, over time, I think that works more often than it doesn't. But people don't like this over time part, unless the time span that I'm talking about here is three months. And when I say, you know what? It might take five years or eight years or 12 years. They don't like that at all. Yeah, but that's the way wait. that's the way that it is. and it's completely annoying to me. I sometimes will look at like the list of books that have sold well, and there'll be other books, and I think, okay, great, that's a great book that deserves to do really well. And other times I'll see, oh my god, what is wrong with you people out there? This this
1: person is a <laughs> charlatan, and what they're saying is ridiculous. How do you deal with that? Because a lot of times, let's say you re- release the book and you're you're shooting for the New York Times bestseller list timing plays such a factor cuz do, do you even have awareness of what other books are releasing on a, the similar time scale barely barely that's something that you have
0: no control over and also those bestseller lists i mean again i don't want to be glib here those bestseller lists are are kind of a they 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 they've lost a lot of their meaning over time um, um, they used to be a somewhat important kind of gatekeeper. Now, when people have access to all these kinds of stuff, it doesn't really matter that much. Also, just there's, there are some analytic problems there, and that basically bestseller lists measure sales over a seven-day period. That is like completely mm-hmm. meaningless, you know. So, so people who make the bestseller list, you know, for one week, it's like okay, you had very you had very high velocity for for one week, but you didn't ultimately go anywhere. So, so that's that's a. I think that's a. It's a distraction. We have a lot of distractions like that in our midst, like U.S. News and World Report rankings, which a lot of colleges are obsessed with and a lot of parents and students are obsessed with. That's nonsense as well. Um, I mean, I think it's b- even bigger nonsense than the bestseller list. Um, but what the publishing industry doesn't want is to actually to publish the actual sales of books because they'll re- because the dirty little secret is that most books don't sell very many copies at all. And the mm. books that publishers are proud of Sell very few, which is why, like things like the New York Times bestseller list, you know has has basically a segregation policy. Where on the fiction list, they don't allow romance books, they don't allow juvenile mm. books, um, they only allow adult books that they consider that the New York Times editors consider adult books. On the nonfiction
1: list, they don't allow advice, how to, miscellaneous, because those books sell a lot. So as you're approaching the release of a book that you've just spent years writing, you feel very strongly about, how do you set a goal for what success looks like for the release of that book? What does that mean to you? Focus very much on process rather than
0: outcome, which I think is another important thing in general in life, because I can't control. I can't control the outcome. What I can control is the process. Uh, What I can control is being willing to do as many interviews as I possibly can about the book, being willing to talk about it to as many people as I possibly can, being willing to think through what does this mean for people in this profession? What does it mean for educators? What does it mean for people in the creative professions? What does it mean for this kind of industry? And thinking hard about you know, what is the payoff to these groups to hear from me to talk about this, this, this stuff? And, 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 and actually, again, as I was talking about earlier, Jay, really um, going all in um, and not saying, oh, I'll do this for 10 days and see what happens, uh, but basically saying, I'm going to do this for six months and see what happens and not get freaked out if things don't pop immediately, but also not get too pumped if things pop early, because that's meaningless too, it's basically go in, it for the, go in it for the
1: long run. I had a previous episode of the show with Nathan Berry, the CEO of ConvertKit, and he had a a statement where he said, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? Because if yes, if you have, you really want it, you've given it every possible chance to succeed, your best effort, and it hasn't worked, like it's time to shut it down and move on. Maybe you're not the right person for it, maybe the timing isn't right, uh, the idea isn't right, like any of these things, and you in good conscience can move on. For me, the answer was no. And so there was a disconnect between what I said I really wanted and the effort that I was putting in. And that question just like haunts me because how often do we actually do everything in our power to make this thing that we spent so much time on be successful? It's also a hard question to answer to like, no, like, did I do that? No. But anytime I've asked, it's been like, no, I haven't.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's a question. I think that's, I think that's the baseline answer to that question. Um, But, you know, the other thing that I would say is also to listen to you have to listen to the feedback. Uh, you have to listen to what people are saying. How are people reacting? I listen very carefully. To that. I read every reader email that comes in because it gives me a sense of who's reading and what they and what they, um, and what they care about. And also, equally important what they don't care about. Um, When you start talking about your set of ideas, if you think about a set of ideas in a book or at least a decent book, there are multiple ideas in there. There are multiple multiple things that you can share with readers. And when you go out and talk about it with audiences from the very get-go, you begin understanding, whoa, wait a second. People are really responding to that. I never thought they'd respond to that. People don't care a whit about that. Wait a second. That's awesome. What's wrong with these people? And, you know, when you start getting that feedback uh, on things like that, I always look in my books at what is um, what is most um, in the Kindle versions, like what are the most underlined passages? I, and I'm always surprised by that, uh, of what the most underlined passages are. That tells me something. And so so my advice is, you know, focus on the process uh, focus on you know doing everything you possibly can, recognizing you can't do everything. But then also be alert to feedback, be willing to change, be willing to change course. If you say, um, like I wrote a book called A Whole New Mind, I think you mentioned it earlier. And I wrote it as a very much as a business book. And um, and literally from the first few days it was out, I started hearing from educators. And I was like, hmm, it's weird. I didn't think educators would read this book. And And educators ended up, you know, being a, a, you know, an audience for that book in a way that I never anticipated. So I could have ignored that and said, what are these teachers emailing me for? This is a business book. But you have to listen to that very carefully.
1: When we come back, Dan and I talk about how he selects the subject for his next book right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters. Featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people Okay, now let's get back to my conversation with Dan Pink. One of the things I've heard you say about your, your time as a, a political speechwriter was that one thing you liked about the work was the project-based nature of yeah. some of it. And I like that about the idea of books as well because it feels yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. a project. Or podcasts. Yeah, or podcasts. But on the same side, I feel like I have to publish this thing weekly into perpetuity and there's yeah. like pretty tight confines of what an episode of the show is. yeah. Now that you're on the other side of publishing The Power of Regret, What do you? Th- how do you approach the next project? When do you know that you've decided what that project will be?
0: A couple of things. Usually when I, you know, I think it begins with when I can't get it out of my head and also when, and when, not only get it out of my head, but when I, when, you know, when I want to keep talking about it with people, that's often a sign. But what I also do for any book, for instance, is I write a, you know, reasonably substantial book proposal for every book that I write. Uh, longer than I might necessarily need to. Book proposals, you know, sort of functionally are really marketing documents. I mean, y- you can usually get by with, um, you know, something relatively short and straightforward and concise, talking about what this book is, wh- what it's about, why no one has written it, why you're the perfect person to, to write it, what the, what the um, you know, what your credentials are for writing it, giving some examples of how you would, executed, giving some examples of the substance that would appear in the, in the pages and being clear who the audience is for that book. That doesn't necessarily have to be a very, very long document. Um, I end up, you know, I end up writing book proposals for longish book proposals for every book that I do. And the reason I do that is that the act of writing the book proposal is a test of the concept. Number one, Mm. does it hang together? Number two, do I want to work on this? So I've written several book proposals that never went anywhere. Why? Because in writing the book proposal, I discovered either this isn't a book but that's happened before, or this isn't the book I want to write. Um, I, I, okay, this is kind of interesting, but I don't want to get married to this idea. I'll go out on a few dates with this idea, but I don't want to get married to this idea at all. Uh, I don't even want to go steady with this idea. And, and so, um, and that's, and that's, and that's really important. Um, uh, you know, I think that in some, I think both of them are really important. I mean, there was one example from years ago that, um, that I, I realized like this book proposal that I'd written and I was like, you know, I've written 35 pages. It's like, I don't think this is a book. Um, <laughs> and I'd rather find that out now than when I had a contract for it. And I think that a lot of books that you see, the, the, a lot of the, the, the weaker books out there are books that would have benefited from
1: people doing that vetting process. I love that as a filter because so often, I mean, any creative could do a faux proposal for any project that they want to take on to themselves. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because it's well so said. easy to get. Really excited about something. Exactly. Announce to the world you're gonna do it. Now you're committed. Now you get oh my gosh. I love that as an exercise.
0: But I mean your analysis like, of it is your is sharper and better than mine because it's it's like you can you can you can come up with it and you can feel good about that, but you haven't done the you haven't done the hard work of trying to make it work and make it hang together, which you're gonna have to do eventually. So it's You know you can pay me now or pay me later and i want to know that stuff early rather than late because if you discover it late it's miserable
1: something about your work that i think a lot of people can learn from and benefit from is you take a a research backed approach to all of your writing and i feel like any piece of content can be made more interesting more valuable if you have more proprietary research backing it up. And it's not just opinion. We're so incentivized just to throw polarizing opinions out there because they get a reaction and it's easy to put together when you don't have to back it up in research. So I'd love to hear your process of research because it sounds like an intimidating thing to... Capture sixteen thousand regrets before writing the book or running this this research process, but you've said today you can do that with one or two people from your garage so can you can you talk about how you go about research
0: yeah, you can do that the thing is here's the thing it's like it's a lot of work that that's all that it is it's not a matter of brain power it's a matter of of, of putting in the time of 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 let you know going back and laying those bricks uh you don't have to be a genius to do that stuff but you know what you you know what you do have to do and and a lot of people aren't willing to do that so they're oh i'm going to do some i'm going to do some research and it's like you know it's like do you do you want to read you know this oh i read a paper um okay that's nice uh are you willing to read 25 papers as a start and 200 papers and most people aren't um um, you know, are, are you just are are you are you willing to do that work? And most people aren't because it is difficult and it's unglamorous and a lot of it is kind of boring and it takes a very 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 very
1: very long time. And what does that look like? Does it literally look like? Do you have you had to go to just like libraries and read books on this subject and papers, or has the internet given you enough firepower to do most of the research from your computer now?
0: Um, I don't have to go to libraries that often. I mean, you know, in the old day, the pre-pandemic days, I would, um, I would have to, you know, I would go out and, and you know, report things and, and, and interview people in, in, in person. But I, I mean, here's what it looks like, Jay. It, what does it look like? It looks like this. Okay. This oh is like gosh. one, but that's like, let's, this is like one 50th. All right. Um, it, you know, um, you have to be willing to. You have to be willing to turn, you know, to turn every page and, and, and that's, and that's hard and it's unglamorous and it's sometimes boring and most people don't want to do it. How do you know when you've done enough? That's a good question. Um, I don't think you always do. Um, for me, it's very instinctual, but I think it becomes when, when I start hearing the same thing over and over again, that is you can almost chart it out. It's like you're, let's say you're, you're saying, okay, so I need to, I'm going to give you an example. Um, What does the science say about um, the importance of um, feelings of belonging on academic performance? I'm I'm totally making that up, okay? Um, And so you start out with a hunch, okay, about what it'll say. And then if you were to chart it, you say, oh, I'm learning more, I'm learning more, I'm learning more, I'm learning more. And then at a certain point, you say, wait a second, I'm hearing the same thing over and over again. Uh, And you look at your notes and it's like, okay, I already wrote that down. Um, oh, here's somebody else saying this same exact same thing. And so you get this instinct when you're, when you're plateauing. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is basically at a certain point, you have to say, okay, this is, I, I got this down more or less now. I'm not getting a PhD in the, I'm not writing a PhD thesis in belonging in academic performance. What I wanna do is I wanna master the basics of this, get it right, lock it down, and uh and move on and so when you feel yourself at least i do when i feel myself plateauing there i basically have to i you know as 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 much as i would like to read four more things because it's a lot easier than writing you have to say okay stop there and then there's also the test of well i've done the research can i explain it in a way that is crisp and coherent and sometimes you can't and so you start explaining and you're like oh wait a second i actually don't understand this as well as i thought or oh, I never thought about this point. You have to go back and do some more research. So all of this is, all of of this, like if you want to do this right, you got to do a lot of work. That's, you know, you don't have to be very smart. Believe me, you just have to be able to, you have to be willing to do a lot of work. I think it's true for, I think it's true for anything. You look at like these works of, you look at these works of, of, of history or biography that, that people write It take five, seven, eight years to write, you know, and you look at this and it's like, wow, this is like, took so much work to do, to find all this research, to put it together in a coherent way. Um, You know, this is, I like my, 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 my hat is off to you and you're doing me a service as a, you're doing me a service as a reader.
1: That's the opportunity though. You know, this is the mindset shift I'm trying to have myself constantly is you have these narratives where you say, ah, but that sounds like a lot of work or that sounds hard, but that's exactly why that makes something valuable. That's why other people aren't doing it. That's the opportunity for you.
0: Bingo. hundred percent behind you on that one. On both. Okay. So, so, so on both dimensions of that, number one is that, um, that's what makes it valuable. You said it perfectly. That's what makes it valuable. And also that's what allows you to, you know, if we go back to the the famous business strategy metaphor of red ocean versus blue ocean, all right? Cranking out short-term hot takes on things, you know, in is is a red ocean, all right? But coming up with research-based Interesting, relevant, useful things that they can't find anywhere else, that's blue ocean, you know? And so it's, it makes it more valuable, but also fewer people are doing it. So it's ultimately in the long run, a better business.
1: I've even heard you say that when you're in the editing process, you will read your book manuscript to your wife and have her read it to you. Yeah. Which sound, when I heard you say that, that sounded so painful to me. I'm like, I can't imagine doing that. You should, see, again, you should talk to my wife about how painful that is. <laughs>
0: so I mean, it's, it's painful to me, but it's way more painful to her.
1: Oh my gosh. But But that's how you do it.
0: That's how you do it. You know? And, and again, like, I just, I'm I'm sorry to sound like the old man on the porch here, but you know, you, but we see this, I'm not saying anything new here. You talk to anybody who cares about how to play the violin. Well, and they'll talk about it this way. You talk to any athlete about how do you get good at tennis? How do you get good at basketball? They'll talk about it this way. Um, you know, and, and I just, you know, it's just like, my experience is that there's some people who are willing to put in the work and some people who, and many people who aren't. And if you're somebody who is willing to put in the work, really willing to put in the work, not perform putting in the work, but really putting in the work over time, you're gonna be fine.
1: Let's play that forward. let's say I'm listening to this and I aspire to writing my first book and I'm willing to put in the work. What do you see as the best strategy for for a first time author to to get the opportunity to write their first book?
0: Make sure that what you're what you envision is a book okay that's that's a big is it a blog post? Is it an article? Most things should not be books and so make sure that it is that actually it's worth, a, it's worth being a book. You know, ask yourself this question. Would someone who doesn't know you, who's not related to you, why would they be willing to spend nine hours reading this stuff and $25 on this? And like the nine hours, that they could have spent doing something else. The 25 bucks that they could have spent on something else. Someone who doesn't know you, who's not your relative, who's not trying to do your solid. Why would they want to do that? And, um, and you have to be willing to answer that question. This is why like a lot of books that, that come through into my office are, they they don't, they don't meet that test. Um, uh, because they haven't. So, so, so my, my first thing is like, make sure that what you're writing is a book, um, and not simply something else. Everything doesn't have to be a book. There's no magic in, there's no magic in a book. If you write an article that a lot of people read that changes their behavior, that is useful to them, that allows them to see the world in a a new way, that is a powerful contribution to the world.
1: Okay. So I I have an idea. I'm pretty sure it's a book. What should I do next?
0: Um, What you should do is that you should write a one-page summary of that book and share it with five people whose opinion you, you respect and see what they say. see what they say and say, what advice do you have for me? And if they're good friends, they might say, this is interesting, but I don't want to read 300 pages about this. Or they might say, Hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you should tweak it this way. So think about that. Another thing that you should do is that you should ask yourself this question. If this book is such a freaking good idea, why hasn't someone written it already? Mm -hmm. Um, Because in some cases, maybe they have, and you just don't know about it. All right. Or there could be another reason why that not because it doesn't work or it doesn't hang together or something like that. Um, and so uh, so so what I would do is I would start small, do a one page version of the book, get some feedback, maybe then do a two or three page version of it. Get some more feedback, maybe write an article for public consumption about it, get some feedback on that um, and then look hard at what is already out there and, and try to figure out why hasn't anybody written this. Or has somebody has somebody written this? And if not, why not? Um, And in that case, you know, sometimes the answer to that is like no one thought about it before. No one was able to pull it off or people have tried, but they failed for this reason. And I think that's, I think that's the, I think that's the way to go. My view, again, your mileage may vary. Um, Often when I'm working on something, I like to talk about it with a small set of people. Not with everybody, I don't. Not, not, not super publicly, but I like to talk about it, sort of socialize the idea, mention it to people, see what they think. Um, and so, and have people say, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? I don't believe you, you're wrong, that'll never work. You know, just whatever they have to say and really take that. I, I actually love hearing that stuff. And it, to me, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether it's positive or negative, it's just that if I'm getting a reaction is what I care about.
1: I love this focus on concept development because I expected when I answered that question, you would give me kind of a uh, a task list of, OK, here's step by step the process for getting this into an agreement with a publisher, uh, which is actually kind of what I was looking for. But I like this oh. better because this seems like a better this seems like a better, um, more practical approach to what am I even getting into and does it make sense to get into it?
0: I would do that. Yeah. Um, do. Th- I mean, yeah, yeah. Develop, develop that. And then only then start looking around for, you know, if you if you really want to write a book, you're going to have to find a literary agent. That's the way this world works. And so, you know, but you're going to be, you're going to be on stronger footing, firmer footing in reaching out to an agent. If you've done some of that due
1: diligence and that vetting well in advance. How much research do you think a first time author should do before approaching a literary agent versus after, you know, they they're in the process of writing the depends book. Depends on so much it, about it,
0: that. That's, that's a hard one to answer. Cause it depends on who the, who the first time author is and what, um um and then what kind of research you're talking about. Um, and so if, if you want to write a book about the best kind of uh, uh, nutritional regimen for avoiding cancer, um, and you are a, an oncologist at Johns Hopkins University Hospital, um, I think the, the publisher can trust that you more or less know what you're talking about. If you're a schmo like me trying to write a book like that, you better have a lot of research ready to go before you, 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 approach, a, you approach an agent. So I think it depends on who you are and, 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 what, you're, and what you're writing about. But don't discount, again, I, I'm, I'm happy to be tactical here, Jay. Don't discount the importance of um, researching the market. You know, I think what you have to do is you have to look at the market uh, and say, like, what books? I mean, think of it as like a map, all right? What books are out there in this more or less similar space? But why is yours going to go to this spot that is unoccupied right now? Um, and so you need to know, you need to know the market. Vi- I think you need to know the market very well. You need to know, you'd be able to talk about basically every book that's been written or is adjacent to your topic. Mm. Uh, and you need to know what inside, you need to know that inside, you need to know that inside and out. You're basically describing the book as a, a business in and of itself. Totally. Yeah. Because a book proposal is two things. One, no, as I mentioned before, it's a marketing plan. think of it as a, bu- it's a business plan for writing a book. All right, but it's also internally it's also a test of whether you want to do this thing. In the same way, a business plan is that way too. If you say, "Oh, I want to start a I want to start a vegan pizza restaurant in Washington D.C." Okay, that sounds cool. That's probably a pretty good idea. Uh, but until you write a business plan saying, "Okay, where do I get the ingredients? What's my budget going to be like? How many people do I need to to hire for this? How much money do I need to raise to start this business? Um, what are, what portion of people in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area are vegans?" Are there other vegan restaurants in this in this area? Have there been vegan restaurants tried in this? In, you know, it's like that's a different kettle
1: of fish. There, I love these takes because a lot of times when I ask these questions, the kind of trite advice I've started to get is uh, all that matters is now you're coming to a literary agent and you already have an audience. That's all they care about,
0: the, the, and, that, and that's not insignificant. Okay, so 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 I think that if you go to if you go to a liter, I, I think that again I don't I, again I'm not trying to be pollyanna ish here. Um, I think that matters. You know, um, I, I think that if you have a built-in audience, that's helpful. If you have a platform, that's super helpful. Um, but you know, it's it might be necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. And in all cases, it's not totally, totally. Totally necessary. I, I, don't, I, I, just, I, I think that, that you got to get the, 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 the substantive, deeper stuff right first. The other stuff is I think those are, in, in some ways, second-order issues. If you start saying, I have a big platform, I should write a book, you're going to write a crappy book. If you say, I've it. got an idea for a book, I'm the perfect person to write it, it's going to be a great
1: book, how can I build a platform to launch it? That's a better way to go. I love it. Well, I'd like to wrap this up with just a quick, simple question that I love asking people. Inside the world of authors, is there a hunch that you have about where things are heading, but you don't have any data yet to support that hunch? (laughs) Um, uh,
0: Data-free hunches are my specialty. Um, (laughs) So um, I would, I, I have a hunch that books will get a little shorter. Um, because I think that attention spans are shrinking. That's always, I think that's been a per- permanent state. I think they're shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. I think a lot of books are too long. So I think we'll get that. I also feel like there is an opportunity out there for book, for a quote unquote book, beyond an ebook uh, to uh, integrate other elements, other kinds of interactive elements into it. That hasn't been fully realized yet. I certainly haven't done it. Uh, what's more is that I think that uh, the world of audiobooks. Um, we're gonna look back at, I'm going to look back at some of the audiobooks that I've done myself, where I'm basically sitting in a studio and reading my written text aloud and calling that an audiobook. I think we're going to look at that as like a joke. Uh, and what we're going to see, it, I mean, some places I've done, Pushkin's done a really good job of some of these things, is actually creating things pre- precisely for the audio medium um, that are not simply printed stuff that's read aloud. Mm. Those are my data-free hunches.
1: If you want to learn more about Dan, you can visit his website at danpink.com. Links to that and a whole lot more are in the show notes. Thanks to Dan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at Klaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please, 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 please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.